presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Well, now I hope y'all are getting your decorating done because today we're going to be, and buying presents, because today we're going to be talking about uh, perfect, perfect gifts for the occasion. We're talking about the coming of the Magi as we continue our study. I think uh, one of the things that we've discovered already in our study, and we can be reasonably certain that the Magi were not there at the time that Jesus was born. And the reason we know that is because of what we looked at last week. Remember when Jesus was 40 days old, he was circumcised on the eighth day, and then when he was 40 days old, uh, there were two things that occurred in Jerusalem. One of them was that the parents, uh, Joseph and Mary, or the stepfather and the mother, uh, paid the five uh, shekel redemption fee for Jesus as the Old Testament scriptures required. And the other thing was that it was time for Mary to offer her sacrifice for purification following childbirth. And remember, the sacrifice that she offered was either two doves or two, tur uh, two turtle doves or two pigeons. And the law allowed for that, but what the law actually called for was that uh, for this purification after, uh, after a childbirth, after the birth of a male son, that the mother, uh, the parents were to bring for the purification of the mother a, uh, a lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove. But if they were too poor to, uh, to afford a lamb, then they could bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. And remember, what was it that Mary brought to Jerusalem to offer up at the time of her purification? It was two, two doves or two, uh, two pigeons. So what that tells us, because what we're going to see is that the Magi are bringing such expensive gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh, all those things, top quality stuff. If the Magi had appeared at the time of Jesus' birth, if they'd been there, you know, at the stable with the shepherds and the baby in the manger and all that stuff, then certainly Mary and Joseph would have had the wherewithal to be able to buy a lamb to offer up. But they didn't. They were very poor. And so that's the reason they offered up the two turtle doves. So what we ascertain from that is that the Magi actually appeared a minimum of 40 days after the birth of Jesus. We also know that uh, from some things that we'll read about in just a few minutes that, uh, that there's a mention of two years, uh, a two-year period. So the Magi apparently showed up in, in Bethlehem between the time that Jesus was 40 days old and, he's, and when he was two years old. And we'll see that um, and see the importance of that in just uh, in just a few minutes as we work our way as we work our way through this. So uh, notice I put in your notes there. Uh, I promise I won't sing it, but uh, we'll read it together. There's the uh, there's the old Christmas hymn by John Hopkins, "We Three Kings of Orient." And I know as I read it, you're going to be kind of humming along with me, and that's okay. 
But we ought to ask ourselves some questions about this. You know, we, uh, we really uh, very often form our, pic- uh, our mental picture of the way things were based on songs. How is it that we learned our ABCs? How'd you learn your ABCs, Susan? A, B, C, D, that's right. And, and still have to do that sometimes. You start looking through the file and it comes, oh, there it is. And uh, we still do that. And kids and we learn a lot of things through hymns. That's the reason I'm convinced that in, in churches, while I like praise songs and praise songs are great uh, and they get us in the mood to worship very often, one of the really important things to do is not to get away from these old hymns that have lots of theology in them. Uh, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Uh, it, just, it just confirms in our minds and because of the, the, the hymnody, it just really settles itself in our souls. Uh, we really get a real dose of, uh, of, of gospel theology. All right, let's, uh, let's read a little bit of this hymn and just kind of ask some questions about it as we go along, and then we want to see if we can answer some of those questions as we look at the text of Matthew chapter 2. We three kings of Orient are. Well, how do we know that there were three? Well, a lot of people assume that there were three because of what? Because there were three gifts. There must be three people. Well, hey, I've given more than one gift to people at times so what we what we know from this is because of the uh, because of what we're going to read in Matthew chapter 2 the plural uh, is used so we know there were at least two but it never states that there were three in fact it would be real unusual for a group uh, any group of people who are carrying on their person gold incense and myrrh for only two or three of them to go uh, on a long journey that they took from what would be modern-day Iran or Iraq, uh, you know, up through the Fertile Crescent here and then find their way down to, uh, to the city of Bethlehem. Uh, it would be kind of strange for just two or three people to make that trip by themselves because that would be a pretty dangerous journey, uh, particularly carrying something that valuable. We three kings, were these people kings? The Bible never says that they were. Of Orient are, were they really from the Orient? When, when you and I think of the Orient, what area do we think of? What countries come to mind generally? Japan, China, place, uh, places like that. And yet what we're going to see is that these people came from, uh, again, from what would be modern-day Iran or Iraq. Bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Now the inference is, is that the star all of a sudden appeared over here. These wise men, these magi saw it, and they started following the star. And, uh, but as we read Matthew's account, what we're going to discover is that's not what happened at all. What happened is that a star appeared over here. And these guys, and we'll talk about why, ascertained that this had something to do with the birth of a, of a Jewish king whom something was real special about because their intent was not to crown this king but was to worship this king. They made their way not to Bethlehem, but they made their way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of Judea. That's where you would expect to find a king. 
And these guys didn't find the king there, and so they did something that most guys don't do, and that is they stopped and asked for directions and discovered that uh, the uh, Messiah was, whenever the Messiah was to be born, he was going to be born four miles south of there in a little city called Bethlehem. And it's at that point that it says they followed the star. So when you, when you sing this uh, Christmas hymn, uh, you know, during these next few weeks of holiday, and you get to the part about following yonder star, just remember that was the four miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It wasn't all the way over here. But we'll, we'll see that again. And now I hope I'm not ruining the story for you by going through this. And then he's going to, uh, and then there's, there's talk in the next three stanzas about the various gifts that are brought, gold, uh, frankincense, and myrrh. It is interesting in that second stanza, it says, Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. Now there are a couple of words in there that, that give us problems. One is to crown him because there's nothing in here where it ever says that these magi showed up to crown this baby. They already acknowledged that he was the king. This is the one who is born king of the Jews. In fact, they were so convincing that it got Herod all upset because Herod was the reigning king at that time. But it does say uh, something that should pique our curiosity is why would Hopkins write, gold I bring to crown him again? Why again? This is, this is an, a baby. When was this baby crowned? And I think probably in the mind of the hymn writer, Hopkins, it's an acknowledgement that this little baby was none other than the eternal Son of God who is already King of kings and Lord of lords. But clearly they did not come to crown him. They came to worship him, as we shall see. All right, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about one other thing. And that is, who were these magi? Since we're going to be talking about magi, who were they? Um, I put in your notes there that, uh, that a Greek historian named Herodotus talked about the magi, that they were a, a priestly cast uh, um, of the Medes. Remember, the Medes and the Persians uh, lived in this area. Persia would be modern-day Iran. Uh, they practiced an, uh, uh, Zoroastrianism. Uh, Zoroastrianism was a form of religion in which a person or a, a so-called deity named Ahura Mazda, sounds like an automobile, doesn't it? Ahura Mazda was, uh, was worshipped in the presence of fire. Now that's significant because uh, one of the things, if, if you recall the story of Daniel, uh, in fact, uh, in Daniel chapter 2, remember there were three Hebrew boys. Uh, they weren't Hart, Schaffner, and Marks. They were three other, three other guys. We, uh, who were they? Do anybody remember? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Actually, that's their, uh, that's their Babylonian names rather than their Hebrew names, but their names were changed to that. Isn't it funny that we remember those three boys as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names, but we don't remember Daniel by his Babylonian name. His name was changed to Belteshazzar. Isn't it funny how we uh, make those associations? But anyway, remember uh, Nebuchadnezzar had set up this huge statue in the plain of Dura, and he said, all right, every time the band strikes up a tune, I want everybody to bow down and worship this statue. And the, now, we don't know where Daniel was. Maybe, maybe he was down here in the Persian Gulf on vacation or something, but... 
because he's not mentioned in that particular context in chapter 2, but um, the three Hebrew boys said, uh, no, we're not going to do that. And they said, okay, well, the penalty for not worshiping is to be put where? In the furnace of fire. The furnace of fire. Now, that's important because remember, the Zoroastrians worshipped Ahura Mazda in the presence of fire. Just as centuries earlier, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, remember the last thing that God did was he just destroyed the Egyptian pantheon. By the time the, the Hebrew children left Egypt, Egypt was in shambles. I mean, the crops were destroyed, and the firstborn in every household, they were all dead, it was, and, and the place was just a wreck. And, and in fact, Pharaoh's counselors, by the time you get about halfway through all of those plagues, they are begging Pharaoh, please, please let these people go. Their God is destroying our nation. Well, so what you've got is you've got God conquering the pantheon of the Egyptians in the story of Moses, and in the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what you see is the true God, the God of the Hebrews, was, uh, was overcoming the God of Nebuchadnezzar, the God who was worshipped and represented by fire, uh, probably Ahura Mazda. So uh, just an, uh, a little interesting sidelight there. The uh, Magi were experts in astronomy. They also were experts in astrology and they were always trying to figure out things based on omens uh, and things that they saw going on in the, uh, in, among the celestial bodies in the heavens. But the one thing that they really had going for them over here where they were is that remember uh, some uh, 600 years, 550 or so years earlier, uh, Daniel had been over here. And if you look in your notes in the left-hand column, I put one verse in there from Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, and this is the New American Standard Version. It says, Then the king, and the king there is Nebuchadnezzar, promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all what? The wise men of Babylon. And remember, Daniel did some writing. In fact, that's the book of Daniel was written over here in, in, the, in the Babylonian Empire. And when you read the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, and that's not our study for today, but when you read that, one of the things that Daniel talks about is the time at which Messiah will actually come. Now, he doesn't give a date, but he talks about things that are going to happen. And so you've, got, uh, so you've got all that written documentation over here. You've got people who uh, at many hundreds of years earlier had been under the tutelage of Daniel. And so Daniel and his writings perhaps are still having some sort of impact and God uses that to arouse these people named the Magi who will appear eventually down here, not at a stable, but at a house, not with the baby in the manger, but the baby inside of a house. All right, let's, uh, with that in mind, I promise I'm not going to destroy the Christmas story for you, but, you know, when you set up your creche, uh, when you, you know, we like to do that, put it on the coffee table, unless you have grandchildren, and then you have to put it up on the mantle, because the grandchildren will take the little baby Jesus out of the manger and pull his head off. Uh, 
But what you want to do is, you know, our tendency is to set the stable up and the angels on top and the star and the got mom and stepdad in there and the baby Jesus in the manger and then there's shepherds and they're usually animals and there's no little drummer boys or anything like that. But usually we've got three really good-looking, well-dressed guys and with camels who are, uh, who are over to one side. Well, remember... They weren't there. So if you want your if you want your crèche to be politically correct, leave off the magi. Keep them in the utility room or out on the porch, and just move them, you know, a few inches every day. And eventually, when they get there, of course, the baby and the mom won't be at the at the manger anymore in the in the stable or the cave. That's just an aside. Matthew chapter two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Now, why was he born there? Because remember, Micah, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament had prophesied what? That that's where the Messiah would be born, was in Bethlehem. That's the reason that Joseph and Mary made the 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem in late-term pregnancy for her. That was not something that most women would enjoy doing, but... uh, there was a bureaucracy, a Roman bureaucracy, and some bureaucrat had said, it's time for you to go back to your roots, and so they had to go. God used uh, Caesar Augustus that way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, incidentally, remember this, that Herod himself was not a Jew. Herod was an Idumean. An Idumean. An Idumean is a descendant of Esau. Now, the Hebrews were descendants of Esau's brother, who was Jacob. That's right. So you got Jacob and Esau. Now, generally, for a long time, how well did Jacob and Esau get along? Not well at all. All right, so the Herod was a king because the Roman Senate had appointed him to be king. The people who lived in this area resented that. They resented it even more that a descendant of Esau was reigning over them rather than a descendant of Jacob. So Herod was not a real popular guy. In fact, he was hated to the degree that, uh, that uh, I believe it was this Herod, that he had decided when it was getting close to time for him to die uh, one of the things that he did was that he ordered that after his death that a number of prominent citizens in the area of Jerusalem be put to the sword because he knew that when he died there would be rejoicing all over Judea that he was dead. And so he wanted some people to be mourning. And uh, the only way they would mourn is if some of their friends and relatives were put to the sword. Uh, just a, a real prince of a guy, you can tell. All right. During the, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, notice it doesn't say from the Orient, it just says from the east, and certainly this area we're talking about, Iraq, Iran is certainly east of there, came to Jerusalem. And Now, why did they come to Jerusalem? Well, again, they're looking for whom? They're looking for a king, and where would you expect to find a king? Well, you expect to find a king four miles north of Bethlehem, in Jerusalem because that's the capital of Judea. So that's why they got... Now notice, does it say anything about their following a star to this point? Nothing there. 
But they came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Notice, it doesn't say we followed his star over here. It just says, we saw his star. His star appeared. Or we call that the Christmas star. His star appeared in the east and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Now, why would he be disturbed? Well, they're coming to worship what? A king. Well, what is Herod? He's king. So, you know, there's, uh, that's a threat for Herod. Herod already knew that people didn't like him. And so now there's this talk about these people from these Gentiles who show up, who themselves are not kings, but very often are people who put their stamp of approval on kings. Uh, they're there, and it's very disturbing to Herod. And Herod probably had, had printed up a lot of those T-shirts. You know, we've all seen the T-shirt that says, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, Herod probably had some that said, if when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, because notice what happened. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So, you know, the, the ripples were sort of going outward from all of this. When he had called together all the people, now, now, he's going to get his advisors together to ask him a question. He doesn't have a clue what the answer is. Now, what is it that the wise men want? They want to know where this king is, who's, this person who's been just recently born king of the Jews, because they've come not just to see him, not to crown him, but to worship him. Man, this must be somebody really special. It says, uh, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. Now notice, nobody starts scratching their head and say, well, that's a good one, Herod. Golly, I wish I could tell you. No, they were students of Scripture. Notice what they say. They quote from, uh, from Micah. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as we shall see. It says, where is the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now, Matthew didn't put in the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, that are in and uh, that Micah wrote, uh, he didn't have to because people were real, uh, Jewish people were real familiar with this passage. It was a messianic passage. But if you read the next couple of verses that come after this in the Old Testament, it talks about this king who reigns has an eternal reign. So this is an unusual king that he's talking about here. Then it says, then, here, incidentally, here you've got people who know the Old Testament scriptures. They're familiar with the Messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament about there's one who's going to come. That's, that's these advisors of, uh, of Herod. And yet, when Herod says, hey, where is this baby supposed to be born? Where is this Christ supposed to be born? Isn't it amazing that, that there's no record that any of these guys ever made the four-mile trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to check it out just to see if there was anything going on. Hmm, go figure. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and notice what he wants to know now. And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now, why was it important to know the exact time the star had appeared? That would mark, in Herod's mind, and he's probably right, that would mark the birth of the baby, and that would give you an idea how old this child is. And in the study next time that we'll have next week, one of the things that we'll see is that Herod tries to destroy this child. And what does he order? He orders that all the male babies in Bethlehem and its environs, we're not talking about thousands of babies, but we are probably talking about scores of babies, maybe hundreds, but certainly scores, would be put to the sword. And who were, what was the... Uh, criterion, two years old and younger. That's why we're convinced that the Magi arrived sometime between the time that the little baby Jesus was two years old and when he was 40 days old. We know he wasn't there before he was 40 days old. All right, let's keep reading. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> Do you think Herod really is interested in worshiping? No, he's more interested in getting rid of this potential threat to him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them. Now they're following the star. So see, we can sing Hopkins' first uh, verse after all. And, uh, and, and, and it's accurate. So uh, it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, where was that? Was that a stable? Was that a cave? Were there shepherds there? Well, let's keep reading. It says, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. So now where is Jesus? He's in a house. So see, things have changed. There's a period of time that has, uh, that has transpired here between the time of the birth of Jesus in, in very uh, rudimentary environment, I guess you could call it, as opposed to where Jesus is now. Now, we don't, you know, he's not living in the Taj Mahal, obviously, but he is in a house. Perhaps now, if we're talking about somewhere between 40 days and two years, uh, it, it's very well, uh, it well could be that the big crunch, the big rush that had been going on in Bethlehem and getting registered, uh, the registration that Caesar Augustus had ordered, that a lot of that had been accomplished now, and as soon as it was accomplished, it's kind of like going to vote. You vote, and you don't hang around the polls, you know, for a long time. You vote, and then you go on back home. And that's probably what these folks did. They registered, and then people would disperse. They would go back to their homes but for some reason that is not specifically stated in Scripture, uh, apparently Joseph and Mary and the baby remained in Bethlehem, but they were not living in as crude a condition as at the time that the baby was born. And it says, uh, They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And the fact that they would worship him indicates what? That this child... Is deity. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't worship the king of Prussia. You don't 
worship the king of England, you honor them and you certainly bow down to them, but you don't worship them. These folks, these people, however many they were, they worshiped. Then it says they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And we're going to talk about the significance of that in just a moment. And then notice verse 12. And having been warned in a dream, ah, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. What does that indicate? Most of the time when we go to visit uh, somebody and take a Christmas present to them, we go in and we exchange presents. We have a cup of eggnog or something. And, uh, and then we get up and go home. What is the fact that, that it, what, what, what is the inference here that says they were warned in a dream? They stayed at least one night. They stayed overnight. They, listen, they'd come a long way and they'd come to worship and they didn't just drop in and say, here's the stuff for the king. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We'll see you later. We're going to get an early start because it's a long trip back. No, nothing like that. They stayed and it says having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And I think there's a... Now, we don't know what that route was, but uh, I think there's a, there's a spiritual application to be made from all of that, uh, from that last verse, verse 12 anyway, and that is when we come into... When we have an encounter with the living Christ, it ought to change our lives. We ought to be different people from the people that we were before we met the Christ. Now, does it ever say that these magi were true believers? It does not. Uh, you say, well, they worshipped, so they must have been. Well, it sounds like they might have been, but remember, in these days, and it still happens in cultures today, there are people who discover that there are other, there's a so-called another God, and what they do is they don't abandon the gods that they have. They just simply add this God to their pantheon because that way they've got all the bases covered. Remember, that's, uh, that's what the Greeks did uh, when we did our study of Paul. We got in the book of Acts, and I think it's Acts chapter, I think it was Acts chapter 17, where, Acts, uh, where Paul goes to, uh, goes to Athens, not Georgia, but the one in, uh, in Greece, and he's at the Areopagus, and he starts looking around, and there's all this statuary. I mean, they got, they got, they, they got statues to Mars and Venus, and they've just, they've just got them all over the place. But then there's one over here, no statuary, just sort of a, a blank a, a stone, but it's inscribed to the unknown God. And Paul goes in there and he looks around and he says, well, I see that y'all are a real religious bunch of folks. He said, but I noticed over here that there's this one that says uh, that you've got, that you worship, it's to the unknown God. He said, what you worship in ignorance, that's the one I want to tell you about. And of course, he starts to preach the gospel from that point. And there were a number of people who were offended. There were some who turned away from their polytheism, from all these other gods, and recognized that the true God was, uh, was the God of heaven represented by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, but the point is, is as a, an encounter with Christ ought to change our lives and we ought to be different people from that point on. Now let's look for a minute 
a uh, few minutes at, uh, at these first Christmas presents. Remember, they came to worship the king. They didn't come to crown him. They didn't come to adore Mary. They came to, uh, to worship this person who's a king. And, and the text bears that out. You'll notice in that right-hand column of your notes, those two verses right up at the top from Matthew chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 11, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And then verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Now they brought three different kinds of gifts. Doesn't mean that there were three people. May have been two, there may have been 200. But they brought three different types of gifts, gold, incense, the old uh, King James Version, and I believe the New American Standard Version also uses the term frankincense, and the third one was myrrh. First of all, those were very expensive gifts, and perhaps there's a message there that, that what we need to bring to the Christ is the very best that we have. Now, unfortunately, as sinners, what we have is, uh, is bankrupt, but that's the reason we come to Christ, because we don't need a helper. What we need is a Savior, and he saves us, he cleans us up, and he makes our lives worth living after all. But the fact that these were expensive gifts is important for two reasons. One, they help establish a timeline of the arrival of the Magi. If the Magi had arrived prior to the... Uh, if, they had, if they had arrived the way our manger scenes are set up, so that they were there when the baby was to be born, then Joseph and Mary were crooks because they had the wherewithal to buy a lamb, but they didn't buy a lamb for Mary's purification. So one thing about bringing expensive gifts, it helps establish a timeline that their arrival came after the 40 days after that rite of purification was performed. The second thing that uh, that... that uh, about those expensive gifts is it is God's perfect right on time provision for a very unexpected trip. In fact, at this point, they don't even realize that they're going to have to make this trip. They still are a poor family, but as we shall see in our study next time, uh, they're going to have to escape. Mary and Joseph are going to have to take this little baby and escape to Egypt in order to save the baby's life. Now, how do poor people just uh, all of a sudden just leave and go to a place like Egypt and stay there for a time? That they don't have any idea how long it's going to be. Well, you need some money to do that. Well, now they've got the wherewithal to pay because they have gold, they have incense, and they have myrrh. And those are expensive gifts. But those gifts are more than expensive. They're gifts that are symbolic as well. They're symbolic of, of Jesus' person, and his work. Gold in the scriptures, more often than not, represents royalty, but it also represents deity. If you notice the passage from Exodus chapter 25 in the left-hand column of your notes, uh, this is a reference to the furnishings in the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was that uh, mobile worship center that God told, gave Moses the plan, how to construct it, and then it was subsequently constructed. Notice it says in uh, 25.10 of Exodus, 
have them make a chest of acacia wood. Acacia was a, was a very common wood there. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Then put in the ark the testimony. That's the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Uh, and then he goes on to say, make an atonement cover. Now the, that's, uh, again, in the King James and in the New American Standard, the term that's used is not atonement cover, it's the word mercy seat. Make a mercy seat of pure gold and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Now the reason I brought that up is notice that this is a, this is a real picture of Christ, uh, this, this Ark of the Covenant. Because it's made of wood, that would represent his humanity. But it's overlaid with gold, and the gold represents his deity. And notice that it's pure gold, and it's gold that's just overlaid on things. There's nothing that says that that gold was hammered in any way. In fact, the only thing that's mentioned in here that has had a, uh, a human tool put to it, a hammer, was what? the cherubim that were uh, fastened to the top. And I think that's significant because the cherubim, like angels or anything else, were created beings, just like you and I are created beings. But God himself is not a created being, so there's no, there's no hammering on the things that represent him. Uh, incidentally, uh, and this will not be on the test, this is just a little side note, remember that when the, uh, it was time to put the tabernacle in mothballs, and Solomon constructed the uh, temple. When the stones were hewn for that large temple, they were not hewn on the spot. In other words, they didn't bring stones over there to the temple site and say, all right, that's so many cubits, and then they got the hammers out and cut it. No, all that hammering and cutting was done at the quarry site and the stones were brought to the site and just slid into place. One of the things it says in the construction of the temple was there was no hammering heard on that site. And again, it's, a, it's just a picture that you and I are the created beings. God is not. And notice John says that. John reminds us of that in John chapter 1. Remember, when we, when we, studied, the, uh, when we studied the Scripture uh, uh, regarding the Christmas story, uh, we generally look in two places. We look in Matthew and we look in Luke because that's, that's where the information really is. Remember that, uh, you know, well, what about, what about Mark and John? And in fact, uh, the only two places where the genealogies appear in the Gospels are in Matthew and in Luke. You don't find them in Mark and in John. At all. There's no genealogy mentioned there at all. Now, why is that? Well, Matthew uh, was written primarily to a, to a Jewish audience, and the whole emphasis is on Jesus as the king, that he's the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. That's the reason Matthew is just filled with quotations from the Old Testament, because what Matthew is showing to the Jewish people is that this is the promised Messiah. He's the one who, who meets all this criteria that was established in the Old Testament. Now, when you read Luke, 
Luke is written primarily to a Greek-speaking audience, and what Luke does is he emphasizes the humanity of Christ. And that's, it's in Luke's gospel where we read the stuff about Zechariah and Elizabeth and about the way Mary felt about things and, and the struggles that she was having. And what we get is a whole lot of human interest kind of stuff in, in Luke's gospel. Mark is written from a Roman standpoint and what Mark represents, what Mark really emphasizes is the fact that Jesus was a servant. Well, who cares what kind of pedigree a servant has? If you're choosing somebody that's going to be serving your food or cleaning your house or whatever they're going to be doing, you're not concerned about their pedigree. What are you concerned about? Can they get the job done? That's all you care about. And so Mark doesn't give us any sort of genealogy. He doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus. He just says, immediately, here's Jesus, and he's doing all these things. John, on the other hand, is written more to sort of a, I guess you could call it a worldwide uh, audience uh, of readers. And what John re uh, emphasizes is that Jesus is God in human flesh. And that's what we see in this passage here. What kind of genealogy does God have? He doesn't have a genealogy. But notice the passage from John 1. We'll just look at two or three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 10, He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him. Notice, of emphasis of repeatedly that Jesus is the Creator. Though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. Here's the Christmas story as far as John is concerned. The Word, the eternal God, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The goal represents the fact that certainly Jesus is King, but it also represents the fact that He is God stands for that. Then there's the incense or the frankincense, whichever you prefer, which was a gum resin. Uh, what that, that's symbolic of the priesthood. Now, what's fascinating about this is that from a, from a Jewish standpoint, from the tr traditional Jewish standpoint, would Jesus have ever qualified to be a priest? And the answer is no. Why not? Because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Judah was the kingly tribe. That was the tribe through which the kings came. This is the tribe of David and Solomon. Well, if you were going to be a priest, you had to come from a different tribe, and that was the tribe of Levi. And in fact, you had to be a member of a certain family uh, in the tribe of Levi. And yet what we see in Christ is we see the the Scripture's talking about Him as our great high priest. He is the one who intercedes for us. So there's a, there's a new priesthood, and there's a blending of the fact that Jesus is not only king, but He is also priest as well. And then there's myrrh, which was a bitter-tasting uh, gum resin. Myrrh was used in making medicine. It was used in making perfume. And it was also used 
in uh, embalming bodies. Remember, uh, it was offered to Jesus mixed with wine as, to be an analgesic when he was hanging on the cross and he refused to drink it. It was what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, mixed along with some spices and aloes and put within the wrappings of Jesus, whom they buried rather quickly that day because the day was getting away from them and it was time uh, to celebrate the, the Passover. And so myrrh is a picture of the suffering and death. It was, isn't it amazing that these magi would bring gifts like that, the gold representing his deity, his royalty, incense representing the fact that he is the sweet-smelling savor and he is the priest, our great high priest. He represents us to God and God to us and the myrrh that even this little baby, this baby who's about two or a little less than two years old, as they look at him, they recognize that this is the one who will suffer and die for the sins of all of his people. That's what we, that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. We forget that sometimes. They may, have, may seem like these gifts got there late, but they were right on time. And we'll see that next week as we see what happens when the Magi don't make their way back to Jerusalem to give their report to Herod. What is our attitude toward God's gifts to us? Are we thankful or are we testy? Because, well, why didn't I get so-and-so? Oh, so-and-so over here did. May God give us thankful hearts. Father, thank you so much again for your kindness and mercy and your grace and your goodness and your love. Thank you for this great story. Thank you that even in this day you, you rouse the spirit of a bunch of Gentile seers and omen seekers and impress them to go to seek out the one who was born king of the Jews. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.